We have a patient case study for Monday. Let's check it out. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Busy, busy Monday. Um, I fast you folk. Uh, we have a live Q&A at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the link is on the website. If you're not signed up for iFastU, you better do it quickly. Um, and we will see you early this afternoon. Last couple of Q&As have been pretty killer, so so we've had a good time. Um, I'm going to dig right into Monday's Q&A because I got a dentist appointment today. Braces. Um, so this comes from Carmine. And Carmine has a case study for us, so this is going to be kind of fun. Um, he says, I appreciate you sharing your model and the content you consistently put out. Well, you are most welcome, Carmine. Um, I have a client who often experiences right SI joint pain. He is biased towards a narrow ISA with a straight leg raise. So pay attention to these numbers, folks. Straight leg raise of 85 on the left, 75 on the right. Hip flexion on the right is 130, 110 on the left. He has about 30 degrees of IR on the left, 20 on the right. ER on the right, I'm sorry, ER on the left is 60, 50 on the right. What would be the orientation of the pelvis? And what do you believe is producing the pain experience on the right side with these measures? Would this be a pelvis tipped on an oblique axis to the right with an anterior posterior compression on the right? What activities would you recommend for this individual? What activities would I recommend? Well, Carmine, you can just send your consultation check to me and care of IFAST and we'll take care of that. Kidding. Let's go through this. Okay. So first and foremost, let's, let's, figure out why we would see this representation in the first place, Carmine. And so let me tell you what's going on here. You got somebody that's looking for right internal rotation. And so they're, they're orienting their body in a position as a substitute for the inability to internally rotate. So you're gonna to have to find internal rotation somewhere. We're gonna go after the hip here, because I think that's gonna be the first place that if you recapture this, it'll be it'll be money. But let's, let's break down what the pelvis looks like. So when in doubt, you always want to go back to your archetypes to start. So we got somebody that's going to be biased towards the, the narrow ISA. Okay, so we, we know we don't have normal extremity motion, so we don't have full breathing excursion. So we're going to have somebody that's going to be in our, our plastic model representation of that. Okay, so right away on the back side, we've got an outlet that is in a, in a position that's biased towards inhalation. We have a bias towards increased ER, decreased IR, which is what you, you're, you're kind of representing. Now, your hip ER measures kind of look like they're, they're in the normal run, but remember, we're biased towards the, the narrow ISA, so what we should get is a magnification of ER and a reduction of IR, but you're kind of sitting really, really close to normal, so that's gonna be indicative of the fact that you probably lost a little bit of that ER, so we got some, some anterior orientation that we're dealing with. Now, you are absolutely correct. Because of your ER measures, that's gonna be your tell as far as being tipped on this oblique, so we got a little bit of an oblique tilt going this way um, and that's why you've got the deficit in your er okay so we so now we've got a representation of, of what we're looking at so your key performance indicator is going to be this right hip ir measure but but you're going to need to get the er back first then we can superimpose the internal rotation on top of that so we're going to monitor er first but we're going to go after this 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 right hip ir now you only gave me a partial chessboard, but I think we got enough to work with here. But let me offer you this, that if you complete your chessboard, you're gonna be a lot more clear on what you're gonna to need to do. Chances are this person's gonna have a limit, limitation in right hip 
um, abduction. You're going to have limited hip extension on both sides. Um, and I would suggest um, that you that you do this in sideline. Don't use a Thomas test. Hate the test. It's never been been terribly useful. Um, use your upper extremity measures as a confirmation. Remember, we've got iterations in the thorax. So just just little hints here. A couple other things. You get some outlier measures here that are a little bit off. So your hip flexion and your straight, straight leg raise are, are a little bit magnified. Now that's not unusual for a narrow, but when we've got the right in, when we've got the anterior orientation around there. Um, we want to be really, really careful about, about how how we measure these things. So if there's one thing that I've evolved over the last oh five years or so is getting very, very particular about how we measure. So I got a, a couple videos up on YouTube on shoulder flexion, hip flexion, on, on how to go about those things. Chances are you're getting a little bit of a roll on the table as you're doing these measures. So it's magnifying your straight leg raise a little bit. It's magnifying your hip flexion quite a bit. So you're getting some rollback on your hip flexion. So so please pay attention to, to how you're doing that. Now, the cool thing is, is that you still got some, some deficit in your measures that are gonna point us in the right direction. Um, just make sure you're getting more reliable with yourself. Okay, so let's go through this stepwise. So we've got some anterior orientation. Gotta take care of that first. Bringing that back is gonna help us recapture our, our external rotation measures. Now, just a quick reminder, because we're dealing with a narrow, if you try to reorient the, the, the pelvis, so we're gonna, we're gonna take the pelvis from an anterior orientation to posterior orientation, chances are you're gonna have somebody that's gonna try to clench that, that lower aspect of, of the, the posterior lower uh, part of the pelvis. They're gonna try to concentrate that as they posteriorly orient. So what you're gonna wanna do, you're gonna wanna induce a little bit of internal rotation with that and because of the because of the orientation on the oblique axis, we have to push back into the left at the same time. So what we need is a right overcoming action on that right side. And so we're gonna drive a right propulsion as we reorient the pelvis and try to kill two birds with one stone. So it's gonna look, uh, I, I like to put, put people in hook line and, and then um, drive the, the, uh, the right propulsive strategy uh, again, at the at the same time, so it should look like that. There we go. Um, now, that's a, that's very rehabish. So, what, ultimately, what we want to be able to do is we want to get this person standing up and get them into a split squat with the right foot forward um, orientation to help push back into the left. But we might have to construct this. So, again, you're dealing with somebody in pain; they may not be able to manage gravity all that well, but we can start to to look at this thing. Um, from from that perspective of the split squat, but we can put them on their left side. So so we want to be left side heavy under under all of these circumstances. So you're going to hear me say that a lot um, as, as we organize uh, the the exercises here. So we put them in left side heavy, and we start to put them in the split squat orientation, so we can drive that that uh, right propulsive strategy and start to recapture uh, the the hip rotations that we've lost. So. As we drive that, that right propulsion, it's gonna help us push back into the left with the right side. We capture ER, and then we lower them into the, the split squat orientation, which is gonna capture, capture the IR, okay? So again, start them on the left side line, or, or as we would say, left side heavy, right foot pushing back. Now, so once we recapture our hip ER and IR on the table, we wanna go ahead and stand them up. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna have that same orientation, right foot forward, split squat orientation. We're gonna be pushing back to the left with that right side. We're going to start with an ipsilaterally load, loaded split squat. What the ipsilateral load is going to allow us to do is going to make it easier for us to come out and maintain that ER orientation because if we lo 
lose the ER in that right hip, we have no place to superimpose our IR. Once you can consistently recapture your, your external rotation of that right hip, now we're gonna to move to the contralaterally loaded split squat, which is going to push us into the split squat in IR. So now we're gonna capture the IR there, and then we're gonna to have to push out against the resistance and maintain our ability to control the pelvis and hang on to our externally rotated position. You can also use a right front foot elevated right propulsive split squat. So, so here's a representation up here, should be if my technology is good. And what you're doing here is you're actually reaching forward with the right side. And so again, we're creating an overcoming action on the right side by biasing that right side lead. And what that does is it teaches us to go through the middle propulsive phase, hanging on to the ER, and then we can superimpose the IR on top of it. Once we can become more dynamic, we can shift to a like, backward sled drag with a left handle only stepping back with the left foot only. So again, we're, it's teaching us to push backwards and to the left with that, with that right foot. Once we do that, we can move to playing in this middle propulsive area so we get normal middle propulsive capabilities. And so then your sled drag becomes the crossover sled drag because that's playing in middle propulsion all day, every day. We can go right suitcase carries. Um, to help us maintain some, some measure of IR, and then hopefully we can just restore all of our normal dynamics and, then, and, and build out variations from there. You might have to consistently apply uh, a little bit of this in the early phases of training just to make sure that they're, they're maintaining their, their uh, capabilities of hanging on to that external rotation and pelvic orientation on the right side, but in general, this should be, move you towards a solution. So Carmine, I appreciate you asking this question. It's a great case study as a representation, but remember, clean up your measures as much as you possibly can. Finish out your chest boards. Don't just look at these things as a, as a local diagnosis. This is systemic. It, it affects the entire body. So you can use your upper extremity measures as confirmation of your, of your lowers. Everybody have a terrific Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. This might be the answer. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Crazy little Tuesday we got going on here. Um, I got a, a question from our boy Johnny. Um, that we answered recently and he threw me another one that I just thought was a really good one so I kind of moved him up to the to the front of the pack so we're going to attack Johnny's new question today and Johnny says thanks for answering my questions recently you're very welcome he goes I'm curious why is an inhalation needed when lifting something heavy for instance prior to a 1RM squat since you've expressed that IR is force production but inhalation would be ER is the reason along the lines of needing ER expansion so that we can IR compress. Johnny, I love the way you're thinking. You're on the right track. But let's let's break this down just a little bit more um, so we have a better understanding of what's going on and why we're using breath the way we do, especially for, for high levels of force production and in certain exercises especially. So we're gonna probably talk about a squat a little bit here as, as a frame of reference, but I want you to understand that this is gonna apply to any number of activities, especially like I said, when we have high levels of force production. 
So one of the things that we want to talk about first and foremost is we got to talk about where we came from. So we evolved from swimmers and swimmers are biased more towards ER. When we came up on land, that's where we were required to really work hard against gravity. And so this is where we really developed our IR capabilities. So the thing that we want to understand is that internal rotation is superimposed on top of this external rotation. And so this is where we produce force. So the heavier the load, the more force you're going to need to produce. And so when we move through the excursion of an exercise, so when we want to access range of motion. So if we talk about a squat, I have to descend in the squat and then I have to stand back up into the squat. And so I'm going to superimpose that internal rotation and that force production on top of my, my expansion bias, which gives me my external rotation. And so the degree that I need to inflate, if you will, is going to be determined by how much force I need to produce, how much range of motion I need to produce. And so Olympic weightlifters are actually a really good representation of this. So if you watch them, as they uh, move through their lifts, especially um, if you're looking at clean and jerks, and once they stand up with the clean, and you'll see them sort of sipping air, so they're inhaling and exhaling, you're trying to optimize the amount of pressure inside, inside the body so they can access certain ranges of motion, so they can create a certain shape, so they can maintain enough force production underneath the bar. Um, that's essentially what we all do when we're, we're performing our lifts. And you've probably had some experience yourself when you're doing your own squats, is that you sort of have to have this optimized amount of, of air volume um, in, the, in your, your rib cage. You have to have a certain amount of, of muscle tension available to you so you, can, so you can perform the squat. Because if you don't have enough expansion, then you're not going to be able to access the, the range of motion that you're trying to access during, during the squat itself. And so this is one of the reasons why you see um, as, as people slowly put weight on the bar during a workout, you'll see their squat sort of change. And so in, in some cases, what you're going to see is you're going to see a shallower and shallower representation of a squat, or you're going to see a bigger lordosis, or you're going to see more forward lean, or you're going to see changes in knee position. So what these people are doing is they're trying to access certain positions, but because of the, the context of the lift, so the amount of load, the amount of expansion capabilities that they do have, the amount of compressive strategy that, that, that they do have they have to actually change the, sh the shape of their body and so um, if you inhale too much what you may end up doing is you create too much expansion you have too much ER and then you can't squeeze enough and so you're gonna end up missing a lift so if I don't inhale enough then you may have a force production issue as well so think about if I don't inhale I won't have my full ER excursion that's going to immediately narrow the excursion they have available for internal rotation so my sticking point is somewhere around 90 degrees of hip flexion plus or minus 30 on, on either end. So I might have a 30 to 60 degree range of motion where I need to produce high force through internal rotation. But if my excursion of internal rotation is insufficient because I didn't expand enough, I don't have enough time to apply force. And so I'm going to miss the lift under those circumstances as well. So Johnny, we can break this down into multiple factors then. We can look at it from the expansion capabilities to access external rotation. So I have internal rotation available to me. I have to create enough internal pressure and, and compressive strategy, but I have to have enough 
inhalation so I can squeeze against that to create the pressure. And then I need to actually maintain the shape of my body so I have enough force production directly underneath the bar to lift it. So think about a front squat under certain situations. So you'll see a lot of people dump front squats forward because they cannot maintain the anterior expansion of the bar. So that's another shape change that we have to consider as well. Johnny, I hope I answered your question for you. Um, this is a really, really interesting topic. So if I didn't, um, please ask another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com and I will see you guys tomorrow. So let's talk about three different shoulder impingements, three strategies, and three solutions. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. It's Wednesday, so that means tomorrow's Thursday, which means that we have the Coffee and Coaches Conference call at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Um, go to my professional Facebook page if you would like to join us. We've had amazing groups the last my, three or four calls, so um, please join us. Discussion is getting getting really deep. Everybody's getting smart, so I, I really like this. Um, let's dig in. I got a, I got a really, really good uh, lead-in question that's going to take us in a little bit different direction, um, which is which will be kind of cool. So this is from Mihail. And Mihail says, hey Bill, hey Mihail. He said, during shoulder flexion test, when measuring it the right way, so he's making reference to my YouTube video on how to measure shoulder flexion. Um, he says, what's happening when the elbow starts to move laterally? Is there normal motion available at the shoulder girdle? And the only way to get the arm overhead is through shoulder internal rotation. So if you keep raising the arm overhead while allowing the internal rotation to happen, is movement happening only at the shoulder joint with no movement to scap, clavicle, etc. Mihail, you are on point. So, so this is a very, very specific situation where we've got a posterior compressive strategy that is going to limit shoulder um, elevation because it's going to eliminate the extra rotation element of, of elevation. The minute you steal that, you're diving right into internal rotation and you're moving towards internal rotation, but we've got a scapula that can't move. And so we have a very specific limitation and you start banging into the compressive strategy at about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, which would typically be one of our impingement tests. So what I would like to do, Mihail, is I would like to take this situation and let us look at three different impingements because I think a lot of impingement gets, gets um, packaged into one thing and I, and I think the current strategies for most uh, PTs is to try to look at um, they're, they're calling it subacromial pain syndrome um, rather than subacromial impingement I, I, we don't want to look at these impingements the same because the source of the limitation that is creating the compressive strategy in the shoulder that results in pain is not the same so we're going to look at three different situations here and we get to use old school, uh, PT school, orthopedic textbook impingement tests because this is why those impingement tests were valuable at one point in time. They just didn't know why. So we're going to tell you why here. So we're going to look at Hawkins Kennedy. We're going to look at the near test and then we'll look at a painful arc. Okay. Now I don't use these tests because my table test will tell me exactly where these compressive strategies are. Just because somebody doesn't have pain with, with these, these positions, it doesn't mean that there's not a compressive strategy there. It just means that it's not sensitized, so everybody kind of ignores it. Um, and then when somebody does have pain, they tend to blame the poor little rotator cuff. It's not his fault. He's just the result. And so let's talk about where this compressive stuff comes from, okay? 
So let's go Hawkins Kennedy first. So Hawkins Kennedy is is that that test at about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion where they drive into rotation and and you always get that wincy face on everybody there. Okay, and so what this is, this is caused by a limitation in shoulder flexion below 90 degrees. So this is a posterior lower compression that steals the early phase of external rotation of, of arm elevation. So um, again, go to YouTube and check out my shoulder flexion video so you can actually see how to measure this thing, okay? We're also going to end up with an anterior orientation of the thorax because for me to have that posterior lower compression, I got all the other stuff laid on top of it. So I got dorsal rostral, I got pump handle down. Um, so again, I'm dealing with a lot of compressive strategy and the anterior orientation. So I've got an early uh, loss of shoulder flexion, but because of the, of the, the orientation, I'm going to hit that IR early and then I'm going to run out of internal rotation very, very quickly. So again, I get this compressive strategy right at 90 degrees. So here's the solution. Number one, we want to eliminate interference. So we're going to avoid bilateral symmetrical exercises. So most of this stuff with a barbell in your hands is probably a bad idea. Anything that's considered a lat development exercise is probably a bad idea with an exception that I'm going to talk about in a minute. So that takes chin-ups and stuff like that off the table. Next step, restore the dynamic ISA. I have to have an ISA that can move so I know that I can recapture breathing excursion. We're gonna keep the activities in, in um, uh, below, rather, uh, 90 degrees of shoulder elevation. Because what we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to capture that, that posterior lower expansion, but I don't wanna provoke any symptoms in the process. And so again, everything's gonna be below that shoulder level. The exception might be that we can use a variation of a deep squat pull down. This might not be the first exercise of choice, but it might be something that we can go to because there's a turn that's associated with this. So once we drive something with a, with a reach below shoulder level or a supported activity below shoulder level, we may be able to access a higher level of flexion without any symptoms whatsoever. And especially in this deep squat where we're gonna get some of that posterior lower expansion in that position. And then we can superimpose a turn. So we're actually gonna use the compensatory strategy that Mihail was talking about to our advantage. And we create that turn and we create a reciprocal expansion as we move one arm through the, the pull down um, at a time. And that's gonna give us the expansion that we want. So there you go. So there's your solution. This is for the Hawkins-Kennedy positive test. Okay. So let's go to the near uh, impingement test. So this is compression that occurs at about 120 degrees of elevation or higher. Okay, so a positive nearest test. So this is an upper dorsal rostral compressive problem. So we're talking about the spine of the scapula upward. Now, to get compression there, that means we've also got a pump handle that's probably gonna get compressed down. So let's move to our solutions. Number one, we want to eliminate interference. Heavy trapezius exercises will probably be off the table. We're probably going to have to lay off pressing, reaching, and, and pulling um, at 120 degrees or above because that's where our provocation is going to be. So this also takes bilateral ITs and Ys and PNFD2 flexions off the table as well as horizontal pressing. Now, we need a dynamic ISA like always, but here's the, ki here's the kicker. I need to be able to capture an exhaled ISA. So to get 
uh, volume into the upper part of the thorax where I need the expansion to finish shoulder flexion without a compressive strategy. I have to be able to reclose the ISA into an exhale position and then inhale from that position with the expansion upward rather than expanding the ISA outward in a compensation. If I expand the ISA too much, then I don't have enough pressure to push the volume upward to create the expansion in the thorax. So make sure you can get an exhaled ISA. Um, because of the position of the, of the compression, we've got a lot of exercises um, that we can use now. So we can go prone and we can go support through the upper extremities in most cases. So we can start somewhere around the, the general vicinity of, of 90 degrees um, for a lot of these, these activities. And we're gonna work on maintaining a, a yielding strategy in the dorsal rostral. We're gonna drive the pump handle up and then we're gonna progressively increase the degree of shoulder elevation in these exercises. So eventually what we're gonna do is we're gonna be able to work towards an inverted position in, in many of these cases. Um, to reintroduce the, the uh, higher reaching and to make sure that we've got the ability to close the ISA, I really like a reciprocal alternating pull down activity in standing that hopefully you can see right here. This is a nice little activity to reintroduce some of the resisted stuff. Um, it's very similar to the, to the squat variation that I talked about with the Hawkins-Kennedy impingement problem, but this is a nice way to reintroduce that. We can also superimpose some cervical rotation on top of that, which will actually improve our ability to expand the upper dorsal rostral area and finish off that flexion without the compressive strategy. Okay, impingement number three. So this is the, the classic painful art test. So this would be traditional shoulder abduction at 90 degrees and, and plus or minus about 30 or so. And this is dorsal rostral compression um, from start to finish. And so this is from about the spine of the scapula down downward. And so number one, we want to avoid anything that's going to compress that dorsal rostral layer. So bilateral compressive exercises like, like rowing, bilateral eyes, T's and Y's, bilateral face pulls off the table. Now you may be able to perform these unilaterally if if you can maintain a yielding strategy on the, the non-concentric overcoming side. So as I pull towards me this way, that's gonna be the concentric overcoming. I gotta capture a yielding strategy on this side. If you can do that, then you can do these activities unilaterally, but to do them bilaterally, it's a bad idea because all you're doing is compressing that area, okay? Now, we still have all of our posterior yielding exercises that we can do. So again, we've got some of those prone variations, but one of my favorite things to do in this situation is um, go to my, uh, my Better Band Pull Apart video on YouTube or anything that couples the yielding strategy in the dorsal rostral area with shoulder external rotation. What happens under these circumstances is you're actually turning the scapula into what would be, I believe, traditional internal rotation of the scapula, which actually expands that dorsal rostral space um, to even a greater degree. Love those exercises for this situation. So this would be your typical painful arc strategy. So there you go. You got three impingements, three strategies, three solutions. Now, here's the bonus for all of you people that actually watch these videos all the way through, all six of you, I think. All right, there's one more impingement that, that people talk about, and that's the one that occurs on the back side of the shoulder. So you'll hear it called posterior impingement or internal impingement, okay? This is a pump handle problem. 
but I don't have the dorsal rostral compression under these circumstances. So here's what you get to do, right? We got prone activities to bring the pump handle up, but here's the kicker. This is when you get to use your bilateral rows, your bilateral face pulls, and your bilateral I's, T's, and Y's because I have expansion there, and if I compress that area a little bit, I can push the pump handle up even more. So that's a really cool strategy for us to wrap up with. Mihail, awesome question. If I did not answer your question sufficiently, please let me know at askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll see you tomorrow morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Have a fabulous Wednesday, and I'll see you tomorrow morning. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. So like, let's take like the heels elevated squat, for example. So <laughs> I see people use like kind of varying degrees of a heel elevation. And it seems <laughs> to be like with a super aggressive heel elevation, you're almost blocked from even getting like into like a deep position or you're almost blocked from getting into like a state of inhalation at like the pelvis, it's almost like a scenario where you're so inclined that you can't, you're like biased past eccentric orientation. Can you kind of just comment and reflect on like the, like what might potentially be going on there with like a super high heel elevation? Right, so so you're playing with center of gravity. <clears throat> so it, it stands to reason that there's gonna be a sweet spot where you're gonna, where whatever your capabilities will be at that point in time, if you're depending on what you're trying to maximize, there's going to be, there's going to be a sweet spot. Right. So I, I, we, we have all the variations of, of uh, platforms and stuff. And um, you know, we, we, we can go from, I think what is the lowest 10, Eric, 10 highest is 30. And if you get on the 30, you can kind of tell um, if you were walking downhill and didn't want to fall face first down the hill, you have to lean backwards depending on the inclination of the hill. So the higher, the steeper I put you on a platform, it is likely that at some point in time, I'm going to actually get the, the opposing response of what I might be chasing if posterior expansion is my goal. Because again, it's just, it's just pure center of gravity issues and, and you are absolutely correct. And so more is not better, better is better. That makes sense. It just looked, it looked funny to me. And like, I, like, I didn't even feel like, and I've kind of played around with it and I've seen yeah. people do like, yeah. like, Hey, if I'm trying to get quad hypertrophy for with like a cyclist squat, like I've seen people justify that. Yeah. But to me for like the, the goal of like movement restoration, that didn't seem to like make a lot of sense. So. Right. Right. I think, I think, I think the look funny test is a very useful test. Right. Because it, that it something catches your eye that you go and you it, it's not that you necessarily have to know what it is it's just like you go that's not really what i was shooting for and and so i think it's fair that that you that you make that judgment right as long as that you're making a a, a safe to fail experiment right you, you never want to put any, you don't want to compromise anybody and put them in in, in a situation where they're going to get hurt right but but i think that, that the eyeball test works you ever, you ever read the book Outliers? Uh, a while ago on audiobook. Okay, probably probably one of the better ways to, to actually consume that information. Um, I, I always tell folks, I said, read the first chapter of Outliers and then throw the book away um, because it's all in the first chapter as to what, what he's talking about. But there's a story about this guy watching a tennis match. I think he's a tennis coach. It's been a long time since I read it. And he's He's watching this this guy serve and and his predictive capability of when this guy is going to double fault 
is is ridiculous. Like his accuracy is is ridiculously high. He's just watching the match and he can't figure out what it is that he's seeing that tells him when this guy's going to double fault, but he sees it. And so we all have this um, to, to a certain degree once we start to capture some experience where we'll see things and we'll, we'll go, that's not really what I wanted to see, but I'm not really sure what to do. Then it's just about layering experience on top of that to allow you to identify when you see these things and then to figure out what is that. And that's essentially what we all do. I mean, the longer you're in this, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 30 years now. So, so it's like, you know, people say, well, how did you see all that? It's like, well, cause I've been staring at people for 30 years. Like you like get, get, get more reps and you, and you get better at it. Um, so again, already, I think that uh, um, what you're, what you're seeing is, is right on. Right. Yeah. So hang on, um, Jim Ferris, you don't have a hat on right now, do you? No. Okay. Um, so Matt's got a hat on, Nate's got a hat on, and 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 Benny's got a hat on. Um, I am the guy that invented the backwards hat, just for the record. Um, I was born before all of you. I just want to make this very, very clear. Um, I was eight. I started the trend, and it just spread like wildfire. Grace, break out your notebook. We need a question. Come on. Help me out. Um, I have a client who has been hip shifting out of his heavy squats but it is only when he's on the ascent um and he's shifting all the way over to the right awesome like his so, butt goes right yes um is he, there a curve curve meaning what like is it is it look like a side bend through his trunk and his butt kind of scoots to the right yep and his chest rotates to the left yep um, yep yep and he like loses he's has no shoulder no IR in the right shoulder at all, right? Okay. You know why? Because he has no IR in the right hip either. Okay. So mm. what he's doing, so what he's doing. So so when we talk about the, the propulsive phase, especially at higher levels of force, the amount of pressure that you have to put into the ground is rather significant. Otherwise the weight crushes you in a heavy squat, right? So as you push up, I have to be able to capture a position of internal rotation. So all he's doing is he's trying to find a, a part of his body that will allow him to turn the force down into the ground. And mm -hmm. so when you see a side bend or a hip hike, those are substitute or, or like, a, like a, a shoulder shrug or anything like that. Those are all substitutions for internal rotation or they're demonstrating their lack of internal rotation. And so they're just getting it somewhere else. That's what you're seeing right there. Um, so, you know, if, if you were to try to do this, like let's just say you did it bilaterally, right? Simultaneously bilaterally, what you would see would you'd see like knees tracking inward. You would see an increased arch, you know, in, in the lower back. Those are all substitutions for internal rotation. And so that's all you're seeing like in the big picture, you know, the, the solution might be a little bit more complex than that, but that's why you're seeing that. Because I'm wondering if he'll then kind of reach a threshold at this point with this limitation and no access to that IR shape on the left. Right, <laughs> right. And so then, he's, then he starts topping out, right? So now no more progress. And then all you're going to get is you're going to get a stress-related load um, that might turn into something bad, right? Because every time you compress in that strategy, where do you think the load's going to go? Because he's looking for internal rotation. Instead of distributing the internal rotation throughout his whole body, he's putting it in one big place, right? Every, like the, the, the acute curve of that side bend and that hip shift, that's where the load's going. 
that's why we don't want to see that kind of stuff because that's that's what's going to lead towards bad stuff right yeah. it's not just bad technique it's focal load that can change things right and we don't want to constraint change because those tend out tend to be you know un, um undesirable for many reasons or anything appendicular like knee or elbow pain um I definitely feel less confident um, treating that. Um, so particularly like anterior knee pain where it's not, you know, medial or laterally um, focused. If they have like decent hip range of motion, um, where are you going from there? Okay, wait a minute. Are we talking about an elbow? Are we talking about a knee? Uh, just knee for right now. Okay. Um, the, the two big tests that, that I use for knees is extension and flexion. Um, where the pain is, is initially less of a concern. Like the, the, the location can kind of tell you a little bit about the knee. So if I have like a medial knee pain, I tend to have a femur that's internally rotated on an externally rotated tibia. If I have lateral knee pain, I tend to have a tibia that is so far externally rotated that it dragged the femur with it. And so they're both kind of turned outward. Right, so under those circumstances, you can tell the medial and lateral stuff. Um, <clears throat> when you have a, a, an anterior, uh, uh, like just kind of like that broad generalized kind of anterior knee pain kind of a thing. So think about it, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm driving force through the, through the knee from, from posterior to anterior under most circumstances, which means that I don't have turns available to me, right? So I'm gonna load it straight through the knee. And so, um, when you think about, you, you understand what a screw home is, right? Okay. So um, do they have screw home, which means that I should have um, some representation of, if we talk about traditional extension measures, you're probably going to look at five to 10 degrees of hyperextension in a knee passively. And then I should have heel to butt flexion. Okay. And those, are the two, those are the two biggies for me. It's like, can I extend the knee and can I flex the knee fully? Um, and, and so if I can't, if I can't, that means I have a rotational problem. So when you say decent hip range of motion, not really sure what, what, what that represents, but let's just say that, that you've cleaned up the, the hip and the pelvis and the axial skeleton. And so everything looks all fine and wonderful there. And then you go to the knee and you go, oh, I can't, they're like four or five inches, um, you know, from heel to heel to butt, right? Um, and, and so that would be indicative of somebody that probably can't internally rotate the tibia enough to, to bend the knee to, to normal range. And so that's where I would spend my time. So, so the goal is to provide the human being with as many um, options as possible so they, so they can select what they need to do within any, any frame of context from a movement standpoint. If you're struggling with an end game narrow ISA individual, you probably want to watch this video. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Mm, that is really good. Already in the midst of a busy Friday, we're going to dive right into the Q&A. And this one actually comes from a uh, mentorship call that we that we did yesterday. Um, and we we're talking about a really, really difficult scenario that, that we run into on occasion. And, and um, a lot of people will struggle with it. We all do. I do. 
um, and it's with those individuals that are narrow ISA presentations, but they're at the end game, um, and they, they show some very, very specific findings, which we'll talk about here in just a second. The reason that, that there's such difficulty here is because when we're at this end game narrow situation, we have a tremendous amount of concentric orientation that, that um, limits the hip mobility to such a degree that it's almost like we really don't have have anything available to work with in regards to positioning. And so everything looks like it becomes a, a compensatory strategy. And so let me show you what we're, what we're talking about. We'll grab the pelvis here. Um, so we'll start with our, our narrow ISA presentation, which is gonna look something like that. And remember, classic model, not perfect, but it'll give us a representation. So we're, we're kind of starting there. We get a lot of, of, of concentric orientation in this, in this posterior lower aspect to such a degree that it it's, creates this push from behind and it sort of orients this ischial tuberosity in line with the femur. And so these, these external rotation muscles actually start to pull the femur back inward. So, so it's not just ER, you, you end up with this presentation that looks like they're, they're uh, externally rotated but adducted at, at the hip. And so when we talk about common findings, um, these are the people with the really, really horrible looking toe touches. And so, you know, they're the people that if they can get below their knees, they're pretty happy. Um, so we have extreme deficits in that. Um, hip abduction is very, very limited. So it's often 10, 20 degrees of hip abduction. Straight leg is very, straight leg raise is very limited as well. Therefore hip flexion. And then if you ever check prone hip internal rotation, you're gonna see a pretty big deficit there and you might not have any. And, um, and so uh, if we're trying to rely on some, some activities that we would commonly default to, we just don't even have enough hip flexion to, to do anything. So what we have to actually do is we have to start with activities where we are sort of oriented with the hip at zero degrees of traditional hip flexion or extension, depending on your perspective. And so um, many times um, we can throw some manual therapies at this and reduce some of that concentric orientation. Maybe that buys us a little bit of, of hip mobility that we can work with. But if we're gonna rely on exercise, um, sometimes we can we can maybe put them in the, into a prone situation and do something like that, um, that will, will give us um, some of this eccentric orientation that we need in that posterior lower. But it tends to be a challenge. It, 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 it's, it's almost an exercise in futility in, in many cases. A lot, of, a lot of times what we have to actually do, if we have to, we have to start with some form of hip approximation activity. And so, so um, what we're talking about is creating a situation in the back of the pelvis that looks something like this. And so what we're doing is actually, we're inducing a very, very small amount of rotation through the pelvis through hip approximation. And so an activity will look something like that that you're seeing on screen right now. And what this starts to do is it starts to actually increase the amount of eccentric orientation in this reciprocal fashion. So we're creating uh, uh, almost like a really tiny variation of the gait cycle through this, this hip approximation. In many cases, um, we get really good results from this and we actually pick up enough hip flexion that we can now start to move people towards some, some activities like, like maybe we do some hook lying. We continue to work on yielding and overcoming strategies in, the, in this hook lying position or we can move them into a sideline propulsive activity with an increasing degree 
uh, of hip flexion and we can superimpose some reaching on top of that. So you gotta remember that you've got this iteration that's going on in the thorax at the same time. So if we can superimpose some reaching on top of this, this propulsive strategy, we get a much bigger bang. Um, one of the activities that's kind of off the beaten path is, is actually this army crawling um, that, that we might wanna do. So when we think about um, the posterior lower compressive strategy that's gonna limit the degree of hip flexion in the traditional imaginary sagittal plane. Um, what we can do though is we can deviate the knee laterally and we can go get some extra rotation in that position. So that can actually help us um, increase the amount of eccentric orientation in this posterior lower strategy as well. So it's, it's, it's probably considered a developmental position for some of you, depending on what your background is, but we want to turn this into an army crawl. This is also a great one for, for kids with this scenario because they like to crawl around and pretend to be animals. So a little FYI there. If we move to a standing position, um, what we probably want to do, because we don't have a lot of hip excursion to start with, um, we're going to start with, a, with a, a very narrow stance chopping activity with a little bit of weight shift. And again, that's going to help us start to capture this, this little bit of rotation. And again, we're going to sort of move them through a gait cycle. We're going to go from, from one chop um, to the other in, in a, a reciprocal fashion to, to recapture this eccentric orientation. Once we start to gain some hip abduction, we gain a little bit of hip rotation back. Now we can move to a, a, a bit of a, a staggered stance, chopping activity, and then we can move into like a high-low cable press. Um, one of the things that I like to do at, at this point is I'll just call it sneaky arm training. So we'll actually have them do biceps and triceps activities, if you will. Um, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna be very particular about what stance they're performing these in. And so again, we get to reinforce what we're chasing um, with this concentric eccentric orientation in the posterior lower aspect um, while they get to do fun stuff, if you will. Um, as you start to gain hip motion, obviously now we can move into split stance activities. And ultimately what we wanna be able to do is move into a, a deeper side split stance. And this would be indicative of the fact that we've got plenty of eccentric orientation at this point. And then eventually what you may wanna be able to do then is move to some form of toe touching, um, some kind of progression in that manner. And then ultimately that might be what you use as a maintenance strategy. So again, this is a really, really difficult scenario um, because of the degree of concentric orientation um, and, and the, the compressive strategy that, that goes on. Take your time, be patient. You have to be very, very patient in, the, in, the, in these scenarios. But again, work with what you have, work within the constraints, don't force, don't drive comp uh, compensatory strategies um, too hard because it just becomes a, a point of frustration. Um, hopefully that's that's useful to you. Um, if it's not, or if I'm incomplete in any way for you, please ask a question at um, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a terrific Friday and an outstanding weekend, and I'll see you next week.